Let us pray for open and receptive hearts as we turn to the word of God. Father God, we have heard that your Christ has the words of eternal life and that he is the true source of all that can nourish our souls and spirits. Let his words and ways enter our hearts and minds that we may accept and apply his gospel to our lives each day. In his name we pray, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, the Gospel of the Lord. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. If you don't have a girlfriend for your senior prom... You can rent one, and she's going to be stunning. A Japanese startup has actors for hire who are ready and willing to be whatever you need them to be. They can be your grandparent, or if you need a baby, they can rent you a baby. Rock Morin in The Atlantic writes about it. He says, in an increasingly isolated and entitled society, CEO Ishii Yuichi predicts the exponential growth of his business and others like it, as a la carte human interaction becomes the new norm. There doesn't seem to be any ask that's too big for his company. He's played a dad to children who don't know he's been, that he's just been hired for the job. He's been a groom in faux weddings that the attendees did not know were being staged. His company even provided a baby for a pregnant woman who hadn't yet given birth, but her grandfather was in his last days of life, and she wanted to introduce his new grandson. Women choose to hire him as a boyfriend. He has men, he has women, he has children of all ages available for hire. And though it sounds comical, what's actually driving a startup like this is a profound loneliness, a a profound sense of emptiness, relationships that didn't work out, children that were never born, loved ones who were lost, that special someone who never arrived. What's flowing, this is flowing from the profound fallenness, the, the emptiness, the social expectations around us, you know, all of this. And it's something that is as old as the human race. We see it even back in the book of Genesis in the account of Abraham and Sarah early on in the Hebrew Bible where they were getting very old and God had promised them a child and they hadn't gotten pregnant and they tried and they tried and they tried and every alley was a blind alley and every hope was a false hope and they could just feel that emptiness. It's something all of us feel in some area of our lives, and it's devastating. And and centuries later, St. Paul in the first century wrote about Abraham and Sarah and their emptiness and used that to reflect on the way that various people try to address that emptiness that we all experience. He uses it as a window 
into our own souls. It's one of the more obscure passages of the New Testament. It's Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 21 to 31. It's kind of weird from our perspective, but he's using a passage from the Hebrew Bible about their experience of emptiness and the ways they sought relief. And he's going to use that to talk about us and how we live our lives. It's Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21. This is God's word. Tell me, Paul writes, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. The son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the promise. These things may have maybe taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit, and it's the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers... We are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. What on earth is going on here? And what does this have to do with anything in our lives today? Let me explain. First, we all have this longing to be filled. Uh, Paul appeals to the example of Abraham and Sarah. What happened with Abraham and Sarah is eventually God had promised a kid and it didn't come. And they waited years. They waited decades. They waited forever. And so finally they had this idea, oh, well, we could, you know, Abraham, you could just maybe spend some time with the maid and maybe something will happen. And the maid, the slave woman gets pregnant. Her name was Hagar. And they had a child named uh, uh, Ishmael. And then lo and behold, you know, Sarah actually got pregnant at the age of 100 and whatever. She was old, but there was still one egg somewhere. And it dropped, and she had a baby, which was the promised child that was not the child of the maid, but the child of the wife, and therefore the one with the inheritance and the one who would live as a free person. Um, Some of you know what it's like to not be able to have children. You know something about emptiness. You know something about desolation. You know something about sorrow and loss that others have not experienced in the exact same way. That sense that that God created you to do something and then denied you the ability to do that. Something for which you were made but have been deprived. And in the ancient world in particular, not having children was a much more, even more significant thing just in terms of physical well-being 
on top of emotional and spiritual and social well-being because you needed children and grandchildren to take care of you in your old age because there was no social service there were no social services you know you you had to have descendants or else you would be alone and helpless when you were no longer able to take care of yourself. This was a serious thing. But this sense of being empty is something that all of us on some level experience. Maybe for you it's more literal, maybe it's more material or more emotional or more relational. Well, you know, but where are the areas in your life right now where you feel profound emptiness? And if you're honest with yourself, you feel it somewhere. Where is it that you feel the lack? Where do you feel barren? Where does the sorrow hit you most deeply? Where is it that, that, that you feel lost? Is it something that you're carrying? Is it something that's been taken from you? Is it something you're afraid of? Is it something you're ashamed of? Where do you feel empty? Where do you experience the hollowness of this life? Where in your life do you at times border on hopelessness and despair? You know, if we quiet ourselves, I think all of us, if we quiet ourselves long enough, you will feel it. Maybe you feel it seasonally. Maybe you feel it occasionally. Maybe for some of you, you feel it all the time, constantly there and ready to break forth. Your traveling companion, the darkness that is with you. All of us, though, if you will just turn off your apps and and sit alone in a dark room with nothing but your thoughts for long enough, eventually it's going to hit you like a two-by-four because all of us experience that on some level. We long not to be empty but to be full. We long for fullness, a full house, a full plate of food uh, with full flavor, a full stomach, a full refrigerator, a full bar, a full table, a full tank, a full bank account, to be uh, a full member with full rights and full control, full of strength, full of joy, a full cup overflowing with blessing, but we do not experience that, friends. And the Bible tells us why we don't experience that, because according to, to Scripture, according to the Hebrew narrative, there was a time when everything was right, when we had the life that we were meant to have, and our first parents turned from God, and early on, humanity became separated from God, separated from His grace, turned our back on His love, and as a result, we made good, and in the image of God, have become a fractured image, a fractured visage, a shattered image of God, so that not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, and in every way we carry about in our lives the effects of the fall, that universal sense that things ought to be a certain way and they're not that way. Only the Bible accounts for that with its story of creation and fall, that there's a way things ought to be and it's not that way and it's not that way universally across every culture on planet Earth. No one is what we were meant to be. We are much less than was intended. We are less than the best of humanity. It's, it's the experience of both the glory of God and the shame of being fallen. And we have in our, in our own psyche uh, a, a, a race memory of what Eden was like, a race memory of what it was meant to be. And there are echoes of Eden all around us showing the profound beauty and glory and goodness of God and yet always fractured and broken in our experience of life in a fallen world. That's the emptiness. That's the, the longing that's there for something better. That hollowness inside of us of knowing that life is supposed to be more than this and it's not in that profound sense of loss at being barren or empty or hollow. And Paul is saying that there are two different approaches to the emptiness, two basic ways of dealing with our human experience of fallenness. 
And he describes them by using, almost in an allegorical way, these two women who had babies to address the emptiness that Abraham and Sarah experienced. There was the way of Hagar, and there is the way of Sarah. So we're going to look at these. He says in verse 24, These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. It's what he's been saying all along throughout this letter of scandalous grace to the Christians in Galatia. He now illustrates it powerfully with this image from the Hebrew Bible because each woman represents a different approach. One represents the slavery of human effort and human self-salvation and the other represents the power and beauty of the gospel of becoming sons and daughters of God. First, we're going to look at Hagar, and then we're going to look at Sarah. Hagar represents the slavery of human effort. It's the slavery of addressing the emptiness, the barrenness with our own efforts. Paul writes in verse 24 and verse 25, he says, again, these things may be taken figuratively because these women represent two covenants. One bears children who are slaves, and this is Hagar, and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. See, instead of relying on God in the midst of barrenness, knowing God had promised a child, what what Abraham did was uh, something that a lot of us would have done. We do it all the time. You feel empty, so you try to fill yourself up. Uh, he tries to address the, the predicament, the emptiness through his own efforts. He... he, he has a relationship with the maid, with the slave woman, and uh, the gets, gets a child, but a child who is ultimately a slave because he's a son of a slave. Describes it in verse 21 as being under the law, meaning relying on religious efforts to validate ourselves. They're traveling down this path of self-salvation functionally. And, uh, and for all of us, we can be tempted to think, you know, if only I could get this thing filled, then I wouldn't experience the emptiness. But the emptiness doesn't go away. You can medicate it, but it's still there. Now, human self-effort or self-salvation, trusting in your own devices, it can look like a lot of different things. Um, it, but whatever that thing is that you're trusting in, it is going to be your righteousness, and functionally, it is going to be your Savior. Because you can say, my Savior is Jesus Christ. I am trusting Jesus to be the one who rescues me from the emptiness. But, but what you say as a confession or a creed may not line up with how you actually functionally deal with the emptiness. And so it becomes your functional savior. Abraham looked to Hagar uh, and said, if I have a son with my slave, then I'll be someone. I will matter. I will have a legacy. I will have a heritage. I will have a son to, to carry on my name in the future. Family was functioning for him as his righteousness. He had to have family. He had to have descendants. And he was willing to turn his back on God and disobey God in order to have the family. Because functionally, even though God was his savior, functionally his savior was descendants. And so that's what he did. That's what he looked to. For you, it may be something different that functions as a savior practically in your life. First century Jewish ceremonialism is not the only way, what the Galatians were tempted with, it's not the only way to try to rescue yourself from the emptiness. Family is not the only way we try to rescue ourselves from the emptiness. These things are usually good things, gifts of God that we look to, but we're looking to them to do something that they can never really do. Maybe it's your career 
You think if I can just get the career, if I can just get ahead, if I just can, can be successful, then I won't be empty anymore. Then I'll be full. And yet the first career setback destroys your life. Or maybe for you it's, it's, it's power. If I can just get in control and get on top, then I'll, I'll be someone and I won't be empty and my life won't be meaningless. It'll go away, but it, it doesn't. Maybe for you it's desirability. If I'm just desirable, then I'll, 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 I'll be somebody. And you're trusting in your desirability to save you, but it's ultimately going to make you its slave because you can't maintain that through the decades ahead. Maybe it's your image. Maybe it's your independence. Maybe it's your politics. Maybe it's relationships. But what do you look for to address the emptiness? I'm going to ask some diagnostics to help you answer that because I can't answer that question for any of you. What's your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about the most? What if, if you failed at it or lost it would make you feel like you do not want to live? If you lost it, you'd feel the emptiness. What do you rely on to comfort yourself when things get bad or difficult? What do you run to? What unanswered prayer would make you seriously think about turning away from God? See, because that's your functional Savior. Whatever that thing is in your life, it's what you're trusting in. Even though we say Jesus is my Savior, functionally, it's very easy to trust something else in the face of the emptiness. It can look religious like these preachers in Galatia. Uh, It can also look very secular like what Abraham did with Agar. It can look spiritual or it can look worldly, but at its heart, it's competing with the gospel for your affections and hope and trust. At its heart, it's driven by your own human self-effort. At its heart, it becomes an issue of self-salvation. And Paul describes that as the path of Hagar, the path of self-effort. And it's the never-ending drive to address my emptiness through my own effort. And it is a path of slavery. Paul could see it in the Galatian Christians. They had lost their joy, he said. They used to be so filled with joy and hope and and, and they were excited about Jesus and that was enough for them. And now they've turned to a path of self-effort and it has robbed them. You know, they're, they're crossing every T and dotting every I, but they have no freedom. Everything is heavy. Nothing is light. You know, a slave needs his master's approval. And that approval is gained through self-effort. But a slave is never an object of delight or joy for his own sake. A master does not want to spend time with a slave. A slave doesn't get the inheritance. A slave has to crawl over the backs of other slaves in the hope of gaining some recognition from his master. And so self-salvation, it's always a trap. It promises you freedom. It promises to take away the emptiness and make you full. But what it always delivers is bondage into slavery. And he was seeing it in the Galatian Christians as he's pleading with them. You know, it's always a trap. I mean, you know how in the developing world, you know how they trap monkeys? The way you trap a monkey is you get a big, heavy gourd and you make a little tiny hole in it just big enough for a monkey's hand to fit in. And you put a Snickers bar inside that hole, little tiny Snickers bar. And the monkey sniffs out the, you know, in the middle of the night, monkey will sniff out the Snickers bar. And he'll put his little hand into the gourd, into the hole, and he'll grab the Snickers bar. And then he'll try to pull his hand out. And it can't come out. And it's stuck. And you would think any monkey with an IQ higher than 10 would think, oh, I have to drop the Snickers bar. But no, 
And 12 hours later, the farmer comes across this poor monkey tied to a gourd, unable to let go of the Snickers bar because he wants the Snickers bar. And let's hope farmers don't eat monkeys because it's a trap. Friends, you have to let go of the Snickers bar. It's a trap. It's going to enslave you. You think it's going to make you happy. You think it's going to take away the emptiness, but it doesn't work. And so Hagar represents this path of human self-effort. And yet we see here also another vision of the life that God has for us. Not the vision of Hagar, the maid, the slave woman with slave children, always on a performance treadmill, always trying to measure up, always looking for something to fill up the emptiness and ending up enslaved even further. We've got a different vision. The vision that Paul describes as the picture of Sarah the picture of the promise of God and the sonship that comes through the gospel of Jesus. Gospel sonship, it's all about God's promises and not about ours. Look at verse 27, verse 28. Paul writes, it's written, and he quotes from Isaiah, Be glad, O barren woman. Cry aloud, because you who are desolate have more children than anybody else. These are children of Sarah, the descendants of, 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 of Sarah, who would be as numerous uh, God had said, as the stars in the desert sky at midnight, uh, more than you can count, thousands, millions, uh, an infinite number of descendants. They were children of the promise, he says. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. That's children who are overflowing from and building their life upon God's promises to us rather than our own attempts to address the emptiness. These are children whose life direction is grounded in God's promise. It's not about what they promise to God. People who will be blessed because God has chosen to bless and promises to bless. People who live lives not based on their performance, but on the performance of Jesus Christ who performed for you and obeyed for you and was a good person for you so that he could take all of my sin and he could take all of his righteousness and transfer that to you. It's what Paul's been saying again and again in Galatians. He's saying, Christians, Galatians, if you keep trusting in your own effort to deal with the emptiness, it's a trap. And the gospel is so much more precious and so much more beautiful because you have in the gospel a salvation that is accomplished in full by God for your sake. You don't even have to sign on the dotted line. It is accomplished for your sake. You know, very often what we do as Christians, especially if you've been in church for a long time, is we start to base our assurance of salvation on something internal to ourselves. Uh, it's what we used to call in my campus ministry when I was young, we called it fruit inspections. Uh, you know, checking to see if the fruit of the Spirit are there. Am I loving people? Am I joyful? Am I patient? Am I, do I exercise full self-control? You know, it, 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 because then I'll know that I'm really a Christian. Do I love God as much as I should? Am I obeying Him more than I used to? Uh, the Bible tells me I should love God, but do I love God the way the Bible says I should? Are my insides matching my outsides? Am I characterized by godliness? Am I progressing in progressive sanctification such that it is measurable and I can see that I am more holy than I was five years ago? Am I growing in righteousness? Am I growing in holiness? By your works, they shall know you. The problem is that that's not where the Bible primarily tells us to draw our assurance of salvation. 
God does not come to you and say, I want you to look inside and figure out if you're really a Christian. What God says is, no, I want you to look outside to Jesus, whose promise is the basis of your assurance of salvation. Yeah, there's a place occasionally for fruit inspection if things just don't pass the sniff test, but let's face it, the reality is your, your insides, you know, it's, it's not that God knows you by your works. It's that other Christians can spot you. Other people can see you. But that's not looking. They can't see your insides. They're looking at your outsides, and they're actually seeing that you have some level of love that maybe you didn't have 20 years ago for God and for Jesus and for, for his people and for your enemies. But the basis for your assurance is never inside, but rather outside, looking outside to the objective promise of Christ. You are children, Paul says, of the promise. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has crossed over from death to life and shall not be condemned. Friends, why would you want to base your assurance of salvation on what a wonderful worship experience you're having instead of basing it on the blood of Jesus shed for you, the righteousness of Christ credited to you, and the promise of Jesus that if you believe him at all, you have crossed over from death to life. Friends, the basis of your assurance is objective and external in Jesus, and that means you can't screw it up. It's not based on your feelings. It's not based on your performance. It's not about your promises to God, about his promise to you. The most important thing about that promise of God is not what's going on in your head. It's that Jesus made it. He said it. It's promised. It's finished. I remember a membership interview for a little girl. She was about six years old and she wanted to take communion. And uh, and so I think it was Dick Champ and I sat down with her in the parlor um, and uh, heard her testimony, heard her talk about Jesus, asked her some questions. It was so cute. But uh, her answers were too good. And I'm a, I have a cynical streak. And so I'm just thinking her parents were really educated, smart people with lots of advanced degrees. So I'm like, okay, they've really coached her. I need to test this one. And so here I am, head, head to head with a six-year-old girl. And... Uh, and she said all the right answers. And so I tell her, okay, well, well, answer me this. What if something were to happen to you? And I know this is kind of maybe mean. I, I don't know. She was adorable. But I, I asked her, if something were to happen to you, and you were to die and stand before God today, and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And I'm, I'm expecting, you know, the standard answers of people who aren't ready to take communion. Well, I've tried to live a good life. I've been baptized. I go to church. Try to, you know, obey the Ten Commandments. Like all this self-effort stuff. Look at me. I do. I, I've earned this. As a slave, I have been on my treadmill and accomplished the treadmill's work. I'm a good person. Which good people don't need saviors. So I ask her, because if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? And granted, I'm like crouched below her, big smile on my face. Really, you know, if what would, if you were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And she got so indignant, she put her hands on her fist and she threw her chest back and she said, but you promised. And I was more assured of her salvation in that moment than I was of my own because she was looking outside herself. Jesus is her savior. 
Jesus is her rescuer. Jesus accomplished it in full. That's the power of the gospel to set a soul free. I remember Tim Keller tells a story about a woman in his church. Because this has incredible practical power to know that you're actually loved by God and, and, and you can get off your treadmill. Uh, he tells of a, a story of a woman in his church in New York. She was single. She was in her 30s. Uh, her parents were first-generation immigrants from a culture that is very concerned about a 30-something-year-old woman who is not married and not bearing children. And so she wrestled not only with her own desire for marriage, but with all of this added shame and unworthiness that was projected onto her by her parents' judgment. In addition to this, she'd been engaged to a man who had then broken off the engagement and broken her heart, and she was very angry about that, and her anger was, frankly, debilitating. And so she did what, what most of us would do, which is she, she went to a therapist, and, and, and that was helpful in some ways. She was told that her problem was that she had taken to heart her parents' cultural values. And if she could throw off those values, then she would be free of her sense of shame and unworthiness and also able to be free of her anger and instead, she should throw herself into her career and find her sense of worth in her career. At the same time, though, she was learning about Jesus and the gospel. Learning the good news is that not that we live this worthy life and present it to God who then blesses and rewards us. That's the opposite of Christianity. But rather that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And, and when we believe in him, he gives us his righteousness and his life and his honor and his worthiness and his acceptance in the Father's presence and the delight and praise of God himself and uh, that we're completely accepted. And she realized that this well-meaning therapist was simply advising her to exchange one kind of treadmill with another kind of treadmill, one kind of self-salvation with another self-salvation, trade out one functional savior with another functional savior of human self-effort. She wrote this. She writes, why should I leave the ranks of the many women who make marriage their worth and value to join the ranks of the many men who make career the same thing? Would I not be as devastated then by career setbacks as I have been by my romantic setbacks? Yes, I would. But instead, I will receive the righteousness of Christ and learn to rejoice in what he has done for me. And then I can look at either men or career and say, what makes me beautiful to God is Jesus and not these other things. She realized that in the eyes of the only person who truly mattered, she was already beautiful and acceptable to God. Now, does this mean that the emptiness goes away? You've probably heard this sermon and you've probably figured out where it's going to go. We're going to tie a nice little bow on it and say, now you have Jesus and the emptiness goes away. No, she still felt incredibly lonely as a single woman. She still felt the brokenness of not having children. She still felt the emptiness. But what she felt in the midst of the emptiness was the love of a father who delights in her and is pleased with her and is not going to leave her alone in the emptiness but sent his son into the emptiness to experience it with and for her because he loves her. That's God giving grace to the empty. It's not about our promises, but his promises. I've got a photo here. Can we get that photo? Family photo. This is the Hussein family from Iraq. Um, Saddam Hussein on the bottom is uh, one of the most ruthless dictators of the 20th century. 
He killed a million Iranians in an unprovoked war that was without just grounds. He gassed his own people and all his political opponents. He subjugated, oppressed, and imprisoned. And uh, behind him, you see his two daughters, Raghad and Rana Hossein. And uh, they say this about their dad. In an interview with uh, CNN Raghad, the little girl says this. He says, my dad was a very good father. He was loving and he had a big heart. Usually the daughter is close to her mother, but we would usually go to him because he was our friend. There was no one else in all of Iraq who could have gone to Saddam Hussein at one o'clock in the morning, tapped on his bed, poked him, told him, Daddy, I'm thirsty. Can you get me a drink of water? If the vice president of Iraq had done that at one o'clock in the morning, he would have seen the gallows. Had any of his advisors done that to him at one o'clock in the morning, they would have been gone forever. There were only two people in all of Iraq that could do that to Saddam Hussein, and they were his little girls, and they could do it because he was their father. And Jesus said, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask? It's very possible right now that your Father in heaven is looking at you and he's asking you, do you really think I'm that much worse than Saddam Hussein that I would not love, protect, and take care of my little girl? Because we're children children of the promise, children with a father, children with an inheritance, children with a future, children who are loved in the midst of the emptiness, friends. And this is a sonship that brings about freedom. The freedom of knowing that you're loved by God, that he's your dad. You know, in the ancient world, when you were adopted, You know, we usually today adopt small children, but very often in the ancient world, the way adoption happened is it was usually a very wealthy Roman, a patrician, a citizen, a a nobility who did not have a son to be an heir. And so he would often take a young man, one of his slaves, and he would free the young man and adopt him as his son and place his name upon him. And at that point, all of that new son's liabilities and debts would transfer to his father and all of his father's wealth and lands and title and seat in the Senate and everything else would transfer to that young man who is now chosen to be the son who bears the family name and, and, and represents the family honor. And friends, when the Bible talks about us being adopted as sons or daughters of God, it's talking about being adopted as heirs. And what that means is that when you turn to Jesus, the first time you put your trust in him, all of your debts and liabilities were transferred to your father and your father in heaven became responsible for your sins. You are not responsible for your sins anymore if you have Jesus. The responsibility to pay down that debt has been transferred to God the Father. And the moment Jesus told us to pray our Father in heaven, it was already set and sealed and certain that Jesus himself would pay that debt for you because that is what our Father did when he brought us into his family. You don't, you know, you don't take your nine-year-old you know, baby gap and get your nine-year-old a new onesie and then ask your nine-year-old, how are you going to pay for that? 
when the credit card statement comes, you don't throw it into the pack and play and say, go on, pay it off. It's your debt. No, it's your debt because you're the parent. And God pays our debts for us because he is our dad, because you have a father and you are therefore children of the promise. It was fall of 2014 and... Meg Kaplan and her daughter were at a pumpkin patch and daddy had been away in Afghanistan for the previous 10 months and he wasn't due until after the holidays. And so Meg decided that she and her little girl were going to go find the biggest, most perfect pumpkin they could find and prepare it while daddy was away. But a surprising and good turn of events actually enabled daddy to come home sooner than they planned. And so Meg went into action and this little girl is looking at pumpkins, trying to find the most perfect one that she can carve so that when daddy comes home, he'll be able to see her perfect pumpkin. And we've got a video of what happens here. Pumpkin day. Pumpkin day. I mean, a trick-or-treat day. Pumpkin day. Daddy. (laughs) Watch her face. That's a dad. Oh, sweetheart. Are they happy tears? They're really questioning the wisdom of this. Is that a good surprise, kiddo? Yeah? Smile! Aren't you happy he's here? get that? She asks why she's crying. She says she missed her daddy. And yet the joy erupts when she realizes that he's here and he's here to stay. Friends, when the Bible tells you how to picture God, when St. Paul tells you how to picture God, when Jesus says how to picture God, they all give the same answer. We've got a photo of what that looks like. When you picture God, I want you to picture a dad. You are in his arms, safe, cherished, held, supported, and he's not going anywhere. A father who loves you deeply. A God who is not absent or distant or aloof. A God who comes to you and embraces you in the midst of the emptiness and loves you because he's not an angry ogre shaking a stick at you. He's your dad. And he's wild about you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our dad. Thank you that we can approach you and say, Abba, Father. Oh, Father, we consecrate to you the elements on this table that you administer your grace and your gospel to us who are so loved. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.